Section 10 of Europe Revised. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Europe Revised by Irvin S. Cobb. Chapter 6. La Belle France Being the First Stop. Part 1. Except eighty or ninety other things, the British Channel was the most disappointing thing we encountered in our travels. All my reading on this subject had led me to expect that the channel would be very choppy, and that we should all be very seasick. Nothing of the sort befell. The channel may have been suety, but it was not choppy. The steamer that ferried us over ran as steadily as a clock, and everybody felt as fine as a fiddle. A friend of mine, whom I met six weeks later in Florence, had better luck. He crossed on an occasion when a test was being made of a device for preventing seasickness. A Frenchman was the inventor, and also the experimenter. This Frenchman had spent valuable years of his life perfecting his invention. It resembled a hammock, sprung between uprights. The supports were to be bolted to the deck of the ship, and when the channel began to misbehave, the squeamish passenger would climb into the hammock and fasten himself in, and then, by a system of reciprocating oscillations, the hammock would counteract the motion of the ship, and the occupant would rest in perfect comfort no matter how high she pitched or how deep she rolled. At least such was the theory of the inventor, and to prove it he offered himself as the subject for the first actual demonstration. The result was unexpected. The sea was only moderately rough, but that patent hammock bucked like a kicking bronco. The poor Frenchman was the only seasick person aboard, but he was sick enough for the whole crowd. He was seasick with a gallic abandon. He was seasick both ways from the jack and other ways too. He was strapped down so he could not get out, which added no little to the pleasure of the occasion for everybody except himself. When the steamer landed, the captain of the boat told the distressed owner that, in his opinion, the device was not suited for steamer use. He advised him to rent it to a writing academy. In crossing from Dover to Calais, we had thought we should be going merely from one country to another. We found we had gone from one world to another. That narrow strip of uneasy water does not separate two countries. It separates two planets. Gone were the incredible stiffness and the incurable honesty of the race that belonged over yonder on those white chalk cliffs dimly visible along the horizon. Gone were the phlegm and solidity of those people who manifest emotion only on the occasions when they stand up to sing their national anthem. God save the king, the queen is doing well. Gone were the green fields of Sussex, which looked as though they had been taken in every night and brushed and dry-cleaned, and then put down again in the morning. Gone were the trees that Maxfield Parish might have painted, so vivid were they in their burnished green and yellow coloring, so spectacular in their grouping. Gone was the five-franc note which I had entrusted to a sandwich vendor on the railroad platform, in the vain hope that he would come back with the change. After that clincher there was no doubt about it. We were in La Belle France all right, all right. Everything testified to the change. From the pier where we landed, a small boy, in a long black tunic belted at his waist, was fishing. He hooked a little fingerling. At the first tentative tug on his line he set up a shrill clamor. At that there came running a fat, kindly-looking old priest in a long gown and a shovel hat, and a market-woman came, who had arms like a wrestler, and skirts that stuck out like a ballet dancer's, and a soldier in baggy red pants came, and thirty or forty others of all ages and sizes came, 
and they gathered about that small boy and gave him advice at the top of their voices. And when he yanked out the shining little silver fish there could not have been a more animation and enthusiasm and incitement if he had landed a full-grown Presbyterian. They were still congratulating him when we pulled out and went tearing along on our way to Paris, scooting through quaint, stone-walled cities, each one dominated by its crumbly old cathedral, sliding through open country where the fields were all diked and ditched with small canals and bordered with poplars trimmed so that each tree looked like a set of undertaker's whiskers pointing the wrong way. And in these fields were peasants in sabots at work, looking as though they had just stepped out of one of Millet's pictures. Even the haystacks and the scarecrows were different. In England the haystacks had been geometrically correct in their dimensions, so square and firm and exact that sections might be sliced off them like cheese, and doors and windows might be carved in them. But these French haystacks were devil-may-care haystacks wearing tufts on their poles like headdresses. The windmills had a rakish air, and the scarecrows in the trunk gardens were debonair and cocky, tilting themselves back on their pins the better to enjoy the view, and fluttering their ragged vestments in a most jaunty fashion. The land, though, looked poor. It had a driven, overworked look to it. Presently, above the clacking voice of our train, we heard a whining roar without, and peering forth we beheld almost over our heads a big monoplane racing with us. It seemed a mighty, winged thunder-lizard that had come back to link the age of stone with the age of air. On second thought, I am inclined to believe the thunder-lizard did not flourish in the stone age, but if you like the simile as much as I like it, we will just let it stand. Three times on that trip we saw from the windows of our train aviators out enjoying the cool of the evening in their airships, and each time the natives among the passengers jammed into the passageway that flanked the compartments and speculated regarding the identity of the aviators and the make of their machines, and argued and shrugged their shoulders and quarreled and gesticulated. The whole thing was as Frenchy as tripe in a casserole. I was wrong, though, a minute ago when I said there remained nothing to remind us of the right little, tight little island we had just quit, for we had two Englishmen in our compartment, fit and proper representatives of a certain breed of Englishmen. They were tall and lean, and had the languid eyes and the long weary faces and the yellow buck teeth of weary cart-horses, and they each wore a fixed expression of intense gloom. You felt sure it was a fixed expression, because any person with such an expression would change it, if he could do so by anything short of a surgical operation. And it was quite evident they had come mentally prepared to disapprove of all things and all people in a foreign clime. Silently, but none the less forcibly, they resented the circumstance that others should be sharing the same compartment with them, or sharing the same train either, for that matter. The compartment was full, too, which made the situation all the more intolerable. An elderly English lady with a placid face under a mid-Victorian bonnet, a young, pretty woman who was either English or American, the two members of my party, and these two Englishmen. And when, just as the train was drawing out of Calais, they discovered that the two best seats, which they had promptly preempted, belonged to others, and that the seats for which they held reservations faced rearward, so that they must ride with their backs to the locomotive, why, that irked them sore and more. I imagine they wrote a letter to the London Times about it afterward. As is the pleasing habit of travelling Englishmen, 
they had brought with them everything portable they owned. Each one had four or five large handbags, and a carry-all, and a hat-box, and his tea-caddy, and his plaid blanket done up in a shawl-strap, and his framed picture of the death of Nelson, and all the rest of it, and they piled those things in the luggage-racks until both the racks were chock-full, so the rest of us had to hold our baggage in our laps, or sit on it. One of them was facing me, not more than five or six feet distant. He never saw me, though. He just gazed steadily through me, studying the pattern of the upholstery on the seat behind me, and I could tell by his look that he did not care for the upholstering, as very naturally he would not, it being French. End of section 10